Hello, I'm Ben Horton, and welcome back to Career at the Crossroads, a Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Over the course of five episodes, all published this week, John Nilsson Wright, the Career Foundation Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House, will explore the strategic relations of Korea, asking how the country is seeking to protect its interests in an increasingly contested Pacific region. In this, the fourth episode, John is joined by Natalie Tocci, Director of Italy's Instituto Affari Internazionali. They discuss the European perspective on the politics of the Korean Peninsula, identifying opportunities for deeper engagement between the Republic of Korea and the European Union. I hope you enjoy listening. I thought I might start, Natalie, if I may, with this kind of big question that we're asking all of our guests to reflect on, which is how the Biden administration is thinking about global and regional security. There's been a lot of talk about this idea of an inflection point, with the Americans stressing the importance of addressing the rise of China, the vulnerability of values of freedom and democracy with the rise of authoritarian governments, And we've seen, of course, when it comes to East Asia, a lot of effort by the new administration, particularly via Secretary of State Blinken's and Austin's visits to Seoul and Tokyo, and an emphasis on the importance of alliances. I'm also struck by the fact that in the context of Europe, we had a very important speech by Secretary of State Blinken at the end of March, talking about alliance cooperation. And actually looking both forward and strikingly backwards to the 1950s, with Blinken citing the experience of President Eisenhower, seems to be a very key part of the way in which the US is thinking about how best to move out of the rather damaging impact of the Trump presidency. And I wonder, from Europe's point of view, whether you see European countries and, of course, the European Union identifying with the entire approach of the Biden administration. Is there a convergence both in general, and then perhaps more specifically, we can look at the question of East Asia. Yes, I think, John, broadly speaking, there actually is uh, convergence. I mean, I think what we've been noticing over the last decade, I would say, is that, you know, there was a moment. So let's forget the Trump period for a moment and, and sort of let's rewind back before then. I think, you know, sort of beginning in 2008, I would say, with the global financial crisis, there has been this growing sense that we were moving out of a period of US hegemony and we were moving towards a sort of loosely defined multipolar, interpolar, nonpolar, however you want to put it, world. And that has been a growing acknowledgement as much in the United States as in Europe, as, as in Asia, I would say. Now, I think that that understanding, and this is why I think we do get to the inflection point, that understanding, particularly over the course of the last year of the pandemic, has been complemented with another interpretation, which is basically, as I said, complementary, which is, yes, indeed, there are multiple power centers in the world, but basically there is a political and ideological overlay to this, uh, which one can bring back to a US-China more geopolitical story. But I think 
the most important aspect of this is that it's not purely geopolitical. I mean, this is a political confrontation, which really does pit, on the one hand, liberal democracies and authoritarian, autocratic, non-democratic countries on the other. And that, I think, has been, as I said, a growing acknowledgement in the United States, in Europe, and in Asia, which in many respects, I think, makes the current confrontation that we're probably going to be living through over the course of this century, in many respects, actually a much more complex one than what existed during the Cold War, which obviously was another political and ideological confrontation. But where, in all honesty, whereas it obviously was a quote-unquote real confrontation, particularly in the nuclear sphere, when it came to the ideological component of it, I would say that after the first, you know, decade maybe or so, there was never a real question as to what was the political system that could better and best deliver public goods to citizens. I think that what makes this particular confrontation far more complex is the fact that we're going to have a harder argument to make, which is why, and I come to the point about partnerships and alliances, in order to win that argument, it is obviously crucially important to ensure that internally, domestically, public goods are delivered in an equitable, just, etc. way, but also that internationally, the United States will not be able to do this alone. And so I think that compared to the Obama period, there is, and as I said, let's bracket out Trump because we know how it went in those years, but compared to that period, I think today there is a far greater acknowledgement amongst the Biden administration, which is broadly kind of made up of the same people, but it's those same people kind of 10 years on that understand that we can only really win this confrontation by standing together. It's really interesting what you say about values and the contrast with the Cold War. And, and if one thinks back to the Cold War, a kind of common acceptance on the part of the West, if we talk broadly about the West, that free market capitalism would deliver that degree of prosperity that was such an important part of creating stability at home. But there was a campaign at the same time for vulnerable states at the front line, whether it was Greece or Turkey, or or even in the case of Japan and South Korea, by the Americans to use soft power as a way of shoring up support for some of those values. And it seems to me that for key members of the Biden administration, like Jake Sullivan and others, who have talked even before taking office about the idea of persuading the, the middle class in the United States to sign up to foreign policy ambitions, which are now much more contentious that the kind of ripple effect, as you rightly point out, of not only Trump but before him, even a more conditional American president under the Obama administration, there is an important message to deliver that says these values are defended not only at home but abroad, that in a sense foreign policy is now almost driving the domestic agenda. It's as important a part of that. So looking at Europe, where we've seen so many countries now not just in Eastern Europe, but you know, I'm talking to you from Britain, in the UK, where political values seem much less secure with the rise of populism, that democratic transparency and openness, critics of the Johnson administration would argue perhaps that we're seeing a shift even at home towards a more authoritarian style of politics. And I'm struck by you know, writers like Anne Appleman and others who've been making the case that democracy at home is very vulnerable. So is there a consensus across Europe 
and within the European Union that the domestic problem and the vulnerability of those political systems at home can be addressed through the foreign policy framework, or does it have to be combined with other initiatives at home? Because when we come to the question of Korea, Korea, interestingly, is a country that seems supremely confident about its liberal democratic credentials. It's only been a few years since they impeached their former conservative president, Park Geun-hye. They have seen the impact of citizen engagement in political life. We can remember the candlelight processions in downtown Seoul. And we've just seen, in the course of the last year or so, we National Assembly elections in South Korea held in the midst of a pandemic, huge turnout, big show of support for the government. And now we've had two very important mayoral elections that have again involved high turnout. So in a way you might say, well, a country like South Korea is the perfect country for European Union and European states to partner with on this sort of mission because its own direct experience has been one of the importance of protecting valuable and fragile institutions and values. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, John. I mean, I think there is, and I think it's true in the United States, I think it's true in in Europe, and I think it's true in a country like South Korea or, or, or like Japan, there is a growing recognition that democracy is a journey. It is not something that once you have, it's sort of set in stone. It's something that you have to continually foster and strengthen and support because it can go forward and it can go backwards. And of course, you know, there has been no sort of more dramatic moment than the 6th of January in the United States to realize how much it can go backwards. So I think there is that growing recognition which helps liberal democratic countries to think about, reflect about the connection between the domestic situation, domestic politics on the one hand and uh, foreign policy on, on the other. And that connection obviously takes place in more than one way. I think, you know, on the one hand, there is this recognition that in order to pursue a sort of active, forward-leaning foreign policy, there needs to be a domestic consensus. And for that domestic consensus to be there, there has to be the recognition that foreign policy delivers at home. And this is, you know, the foreign policy for the middle class. And one could say, you know, this is From a European angle, this whole debate about European autonomy, again, sort of drives at the sense that what we do in the world has to deliver to European citizens. So in a sense, it's the European way of basically saying the same thing. Given the asymmetric interdependencies and given the way in which those asymmetric interdependencies or dependencies can be and have been instrumentalized by China, by Russia, to basically harm the interests of European citizens. So there is this sort of growing recognition that that connection is is there. You need to make sure that foreign policy delivers and it is understood as being important by citizens, as well as recognizing that because of those fragilities, because of those vulnerabilities, and because, as I said, democracy is a journey that can go forwards and can, can go backwards, we're kind of in this together. And we need to sort of compare notes with one another. We need to help one another. And we need to do it also in a way, obviously, which is not exclusive. I mean, you know, you mentioned Turkey earlier. 
how do we deal with the fact that obviously, precisely because democracy is a journey and it can go backwards, how do we deal with those countries in a gray zone, in a sense, without pushing them altogether on the other side? In a situation in which on the other side, there is going to be far greater readiness in many respects to sort of open arms and take everyone in precisely because it is viewed in very stark geopolitical terms. So China's not going to have too many qualms about basically saying, hey, you know, you're all our friends. Whereas obviously because liberal democracies, we, we struggle with this value question. We need, on the one hand, to make sure that we kind of call a spade a spade and, and keep on living up to those values internally and internationally. But obviously, we have to be very cognizant of the risk of pushing sort of countries that, that may be in that gray zone on the other side. And that seems, you know, really powerful, this idea of potentially going backwards. Tim Snyder was saying a number of years ago, right, about the fragility of democratic institutions. And some fairly sort of trenchant observers have, you know, made the case that if you look at the world's biggest democracy, India, we see the rise of a type of troubling Hindu nationalism that is very divisive. And yet India, of course, key player in the quad, hugely important because of its own geopolitical security concerns vis-a-vis China, and economically, of course, a very significant actor. So it seems really difficult, the kind of modalities of sort of stressing the importance of how there are like-minded states that are working together. And yet you lift the lid and look at what's happening domestically and you see these real profound contradictions. So that's one problem. A second problem is, I suppose, the question of public appetite for engagement in parts of the world, to sort of echo the language of the 1930s, that seem, you know, far, far away and of which we have very little interest How do you persuade European public opinion that it's worth getting involved in these flashpoints, potentially, whether it's over the Straits of Taiwan or South China Sea, where there are very real security interests, material considerations, particularly at a time when populist politicians in Europe and elsewhere are saying, you know, we need to focus on our own interests. We need to think local rather than global. That's a very powerful message that seems to resonate with voters across Europe. Well, firstly, on the India point, I totally agree. I mean, I think India globally and perhaps Turkey transatlantically are precisely those two key countries where there is, on the one hand, a leadership that has an interest, actually, in being defined as democratic precisely because there is an interest in changing the meaning of what a democracy actually is. So you have that on the one hand. On the other, the fact that we are talking about highly strategic countries and therefore where there is a fundamental interest to ensure that they are not, as I was saying earlier, pushed to the other side. But at the same time, you can't simply close your eyes to the reality you were yourself painting. So I don't have a good answer to how to do it, but I think it really epitomizes the sort of nature of the challenge. As for the question of, you know, how do you convey to public opinion that all this is important? Well, I would say that for starters, you actually need to start doing it. You need to start communicating to public opinion that what matters 
to their daily lives, the jobs, the security, literally, I mean, you know, whether you're looking at it in terms of of security, of, of the economy, of climate, of energy, I mean, the connection is always international. At times, it's closer to home. We're thinking whatever migration or, or, you know, the repercussions of violent conflict. At times, it's actually far further afield, if we're talking about the economy, about jobs, etc. The point is that the argument has to be made. Now, it's not an easy argument to make because it's a complex argument, a sophisticated argument. But the truth is that for too long, and here we go back to the foreign policy for the middle class, for too long, there was simply an assumption that we didn't really have to bother. And so we didn't have to bother explaining and we didn't really have to bother too much about what the specific implications would be of a foreign policy decision back home. I think now, both on content and on communication, we understand that this is the effort that has to be made precisely because we've gone through that period of nationalist populism that, you know, broadly speaking, kind of began with a global financial crisis. And now it's, to me, a real question mark whether the pandemic is, to mention another inflection point, the moment in which we finally see the light, we understand that this has to be done and we start doing it, you know, we start addressing the grievances that led to nationalist populism, or whether we will not be able to do so. I mean, we may recognize it, but we will not be able to deliver, in which case the new brand of nationalist populism is going to be probably far nastier than what we've seen over the last 10 years. Yeah, that's a very pessimistic prospect, isn't it? The other kind of, well, related dilemma in a way is if we're talking about the ability of systems of governance to deliver economic prosperity, then presumably one of the biggest challenges to that you know, what used to be the Cold War narrative that free market capitalism was the goose that laid the golden eggs effectively is, of course, the rise of China. And, you know, China's economic lure, its economic opportunity, both the market, but also Chinese investment in Europe and elsewhere, is not only a powerful inducement in and of itself, but also it raises really important questions about the integrity of open societies. We've seen that in the debate over Huawei, we've seen it in debates increasingly about academic freedom, you know, British universities, which are grappling with this challenge of how you admit Chinese students and ensure that the values that are so central to the way we engage in discussion and debate are preserved, that seems to present European countries, as well as Korea for that matter, because Korea, of course, is economically so closely tied into the Chinese market, with a bit of a dilemma. How do you both secure those opportunities and protect your values at home, and at the same time show yourself to be a good ally of the United States, which seems to be moving, maybe this is an unfair characterization, into a more explicitly combative approach with China. The mantra out of Washington seems to be cooperate where you can, confront where you must. And while that highlights the the kind of non-zero-sum approach of, of, I think, fairly sophisticated thinkers in the United States, the rhetoric itself perhaps pushing America in a direction that is more conflictual, as well as the security issues themselves. So is there a room, room, if you like, given what I've said about the Europeans and the Koreans, for Seoul and Brussels to, in a sense, dilute some of that tension or to find some way of resolving the dilemma? There probably isn't a magic bullet, but is there a way in which the European experience with China 
might be usefully applied to the Korean case to actually work to find a middle path? Yeah, I mean, sort of two reflections perhaps on on this. I mean, I think sort of looking at Europe, looking at Korea in many respects, obviously at Japan too, in many respects, I think it's important in our dialogue with the United States to recognize that we come to this question with slightly different perspectives. And the different perspectives have to do with the fact that for the United States, this is a story about rivalry. I mean, let us assume, for the sake of argument, that China was a shining liberal democracy, and it was rising, and it had risen, and it had overtaken or it was overtaking the United States across different policy spheres. Would Europeans, would South Koreans, would the Japanese have a problem with this? Probably not. Would the United States have a problem with it? Uh, Yes, it would. (laughs) So what is the issue for South Korea, for Japan, for Europe? It is not the rivalry issue. It is precisely the values piece of it. Now, we can acknowledge it more or less openly, but in many respects, it is more existential for us than it is for the United States, because It is the ability that China has or may have to leverage its economic strength to, you know, essentially interfere in our internal rules, norms and and practices, which is what makes it an existential challenge in a manner that probably does not exist in the same way and to the same extent in the United States itself. So the fact that for the U.S. it's rivalry, For Europe, for South Korea, for Japan, it's not really, is I think something that means that, broadly speaking, we will actually share, you know, sort of same views, same interests, same policies, but it will not be a total, a complete overlap. So that's sort of one one point. A second point has to do with interdependence. And I think that an argument that Seoul, Brussels, European capitals, Tokyo can and and should be making to the United States is the fact that actually what, you know, one of the main differences between this confrontation and the Cold War confrontation is the degree of interdependence. Now, that makes it on the one hand riskier because it means that conflict or the potential for conflict is not limited to one domain as it was during the Cold War, which was obviously the kind of most dramatic domain of all, which was nuclear, but it was that. Here, conflict, and we've been seeing it already, plays out in different spheres. It's about trade, it's about digital, it's about disinformation, etc. So, uh, you know, there is obviously greater potential for kind of things to go wrong, but there is also greater potential. I mean, if one does ultimately believe in in the liberal notion that interdependence may not eliminate conflict, but it probably mitigates, and it does mitigate conflict, that that interdependence has to be somehow fostered. Without obviously being starry-eyed about what I was mentioning earlier, you know, we are cognizant of the fact that that interdependence, when asymmetric, is weaponized by China. So, you know, our eyes are wide open to that risk, but the solution is not basically sort of 
severing ties uh, and, uh, and sort of hiding back into closure and protectionism because the risk that that generates is far greater than the risk that we have in managing and governing that interdependence. And that's another reminder, isn't it, if you like, of historical precedents when you think about trade competition and, and protectionism in the, the 1920s and 30s. Really interesting about this question of values. And I wanted, because we don't have a great deal of time left, to come onto the question of Korea and Japan, because in some ways, you know, here you have two liberal democracies, both proud of their post-war experience as liberal democracies. Japan making the argument very powerfully, increasingly in recent weeks and days, about the importance of values vis-a-vis -vis China. It's become much more part of the discourse of conservative politicians to criticize China for Xinjiang, for Hong Kong, and other areas. The Koreans much more muted, I would argue, on those topics. And yet, Korea and Japan at loggerheads and not really cooperating in many, many critical common security areas, North Korea, the rise of China itself. And maybe it's a reflection of how, you know, you talked about the populist phenomenon as being partly a result to economic relative decline. And that's very uncontentious, I think, and the evidence for that is strong. But we've also seen, surely, as part of the populist movement, the willingness of demagogues to exploit a kind of politics of nostalgia, to legitimise more authoritarian styles of leadership that are very prescriptive and exclusive and marginalise groups within society and define the nation in very narrowly oppositional ways. And that seems to me part of the problem in the relationship between Seoul and Tokyo, where we still have debates over history and different views about national identity. Europe, by contrast, at least until recently, has a good track record of overcoming some of those differences, at least the legacy of World War II. Is there anything that can be used both illustratively, but also practically by European actors, whether the European Union or European states, to try and resolve tensions between these two key American allies in Northeast Asia? Let me start by saying what I think we should not do. I think what we should not do is basically approach Seoul, Tokyo, or indeed anyone else with the sense, and I think, by the way, this is what we used to do a lot in the past, with the sense of, hey, we've seen the light and we're just going to show you the way. And I come back to this idea also of democracy being a journey, you know, a journey that can go forwards, it can go backwards, and we're all on it. We're all on the constant path to democracy, uh, to reconciliation, to all good things. Huh? It can go forwards and it can go backwards, and we can all learn from one another. So I think in general, the approach that we should be having to these questions is not so much, I mean, obviously one of sharing our experience, you know, how is it that we overcame through integration some of those very deep uh, historical divisions, but, but also, what are the problems that we still do have? Why is it that, for instance, you know, to take an example which is close to home, the differences between Italy and France over Libya surely cannot be greater than the joint interest that we have in preventing the show in Libya being entirely dominated by Russia and Turkey and uh, UAE. And yet it doesn't happen. So in a sense, we're still there. You know, we're still grappling in different shapes and forms with some of those, you know, which I, you know, I think echoes with the point that you were making about Seoul and Tokyo, about, in a sense, yes, sharing and looking at themselves as being 
sort of proud liberal democracies, and yet at times being unable to see the forest for the trees and sort of being unable to cooperate on, on many foreign policy questions. So, you know, I think in our dialogue and in our partnership with Seoul, with Tokyo, it is about, in a sense, sharing experiences more than telling anyone how things should be done, because the truth is that we don't really know ourselves either. Thank you. And that brings me on, I think, neatly to my last question, really. You mentioned existential challenges. And certainly if you're sitting in in Tokyo or Seoul, there's a big existential challenge that we are constantly reminded of, which is North Korea. And it's interesting, of course, that the Moon administration has made a point of saying just not to lecture, not to assume that you know best. And Seoul has made that a a real central part of its approach to Pyongyang. And yet North Korea, of course, has built up its nuclear capabilities and its increasingly more threatening conventional forces. Non-proliferation is an issue that matters to, to Europeans, and it's been a source of basis for cooperation with Seoul. Is there anything more that Europe can do when it comes to the DPRK beyond sanctions, the UN process? I mean, European countries have deep experience of diplomatic contact with the DPRK. And of course, there are even examples of European actors being involved with infrastructure projects in North Korea, the Kido process from the 1990s, for example. Anything else that the Europeans can do either in partnership with South Korea or other countries when it comes to the DPRK? Well, I think that the place to start, actually, when it comes to North Korea's nuclear program, actually passes through what is happening in Vienna these days. It is clear that unless we are able to demonstrate that an agreement on the containment of a nuclear program, i.e. the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, actually delivers, is actually respected, can eventually actually be updated and can then lead the way to other agreements on other related issues concerning the region in a situation which in many respects is far more complex because we are talking about a country which already uh, has uh, nuclear weapons, but which faces in many respects, at least psychologically, the same sense of existential threat, which is what led to the development uh, of that nuclear program. Unless we can demonstrate that we have managed to deliver somewhere else, I think we're nowhere when it comes to North Korea. So that to me would be, you know, we need to build our credibility. And unfortunately, the damage done over the last four years in that credibility, be it obviously beginning in Washington, but also passing through European weakness, uh, let's face it, in being unable to stand by the agreements that we ourselves uh, had negotiated, mediated and signed, it is extremely difficult to present ourselves credibly anywhere else in the world. So to me, in a sense, it passes through what is happening currently in Vienna. And the minute in which we can actually demonstrate that Diplomacy, with all its ups and downs, you know, and and certainly it's a long-term game, can actually deliver. Then, indeed, we can go back and say we've got something, again, not to lecture about, uh, but to share, uh, which can be of interest to the Korean Peninsula as well. That's great. And it's, again, it's an interesting reminder, isn't it, that however real and significant the differences are with the Cold War, there are some interesting parallels. One thinks of the OSCE process and the importance of delivery, building trust, building 
actual human communities and relationships which people can rely on. But that takes time. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So I'm going to have to draw this to a close, but to thank you very much for what's been a really fascinating and, and illuminating discussion. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this bonus episode of Undercurrents. There's one more episode coming up in this series, but we'll be back with our regular programming very soon. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with the work of Chatham House on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks for joining us.